If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You don't really know what somebody is made of until they're put under pressure. A lot of folks can stand on the practice tee and look like a master's champion. But when you're trying to hold on to a one-stroke lead with three holes to play, and it's Sunday, and millions are watching, that's a different story. That's when you find out how strong a golfer you really are. Not long ago in San Antonio, I was watching some adults in batting cages as they faced automatic pitching machines. And some of them looked and hit like Mike Trout. But you put them in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded, two outs, and it's the deciding game of the World Series, and you'll find out how strong a hitter they are. In boot camp, there may be some men and women who are outstanding when it comes to the obstacle course and who can shoot aspirins at 100 yards with a rifle. But when you're in combat, when the mortars are exploding, the bullets are whizzing by your head, that's when you find out how good a soldier you are. You learn a great deal about a person when they're under pressure because you may not see that person at their best, but most likely you will see them for who they are. And that's why Jesus is so impressive to me. He just stuns me. But the fact is, before he was stunning to me, he was stunning to an ex-fisherman by the name of John. And in John's eyewitness account of what we're studying this morning, the man that the world simply knows as Jesus is under some pressure. As a matter of fact, we've hit the very last remaining hours of his life leading up to what just a few moments ago, James talked a great deal about that death on a cross and all that it meant. For emphasis, John takes the last 40%. Listen to me. For emphasis, John, as he's writing Jesus' life story, takes the last 40% of his gospel to chronicle just 1% of Jesus' life. Isn't that amazing? Almost as if every word, every emotion, every teaching surrounding these last days and last hours had to be remembered. Maybe even treasured, and I think most of us who follow him understand why. And if books had slow motion, <laughs> it starts in John chapter 12 with what John remembers of the last meal Jesus ate with his disciples before his death. But I know you remember certain meals that were significant to certain moments of your life, maybe even significant hinge moments, life changing moments. I remember a couple. One meal I had with Tony Ash and John Featherston stands out at Pat's Place in New Braunfels. Anybody here eating at Pat's Place in New Braunfels? Great place if you're ever there. But that glass of tea and that order of chips and salsa forever tied to that lunch changed my life in a way I wasn't expecting. Because when I left that lunch that day, I moved my, ma my major from accounting, <laughs> you're going, really? <laughs> to biblical studies. I remember a spaghetti dinner in San Marcos, Texas that would precede a specific question that I needed to ask a specific lady. 
That question would come an hour later to Laura Gail Crabtree, and she would give me an answer that would change my life. Well, John had a plate. The writer of John had a plate at a meal like that, and he almost threw it at Peter. <laughs> Last week, we looked at the tension of an argument that was hanging in the room during what we know as the Passover meal, the Last Supper. And as it's getting underway, John writes down, there was an argument about who is the greatest among us. And that one just, that just seems out of place. For three years, these guys in this room have spent every meal of every day walking around with God in the flesh, and now they're passionately debating with each other <laughs> who's most valuable player on the team. Andrew believes he served with more compassion than anybody else. Bartholomew believed he had the greatest understanding of Scripture above everybody else. Thaddeus believed he was the most successful at the supernatural above anybody else. And John just simply said, who's his best friend? Enough said. And Jesus? How's he hearing all this? Well, the truth is he gets up. Without a word, marches over, grabs a basin of water, wraps a towel around his waist, and he throws the water on the disciples. He says, what are you thinking? No, that's what sportsmen would have done. You know what the scripture says he did. No, he took on the role of a minimum wage servant. And he gets on his knees takes that towel off and that basin of water off, and you know what he does. He starts washing the stink off of those disciples' feet, including the one who would deny him, Peter, including the one who would betray him, Judas, who just in a matter of hours would turn him over to the religious leaders who would make sure he was crucified, and including the rest of everyone in the room who would all run away when he needed the most to stand firm. And stand with him. And when he had finished that little object lesson, you know what he said to him. We saw it last week. What I've done for you, I'm asking you. Would you do that for each other? Wow. <laughs> Under the pressure of his own death in a matter of hours, and Jesus is still teaching, and he's still shaping, and he's still molding ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with him. <laughs> and that just impresses me. Now, John dips his, his quill into the inkwell, and he pulls it out, and he starts to write on his papyrus sheet something that probably had to make his stomach a little queasy. It's a section of his time with Jesus that's marked by a word pregnant with emotion in any language. You ready for the word? Betrayal. Jesus said, I am not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you that whoever accepts anybody that I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Now, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's just shocking. <laughs> his disciples stared at one another at loss for, for which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. 
And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I'm going to give a piece of bread to when I've dipped it in a dish. And then he dipped the piece of bread in a dish and he gave it to who? Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Scripture says, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what you're about to do, you do quickly. But, this is the part that gets me in the story. Nobody at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And I love this little bit of John's writing. And it was what? Night. Pray with me, church. Father, for some of us in this room, at this moment, it's night. Even though the sun's shining. Even though it's close to 1030. It's still night. It's dark. And we need your light to shine in a way that only you can shine it. To save a marriage. To reconcile a friendship. To have the streak to return to work tomorrow. To be patient with a teenager one more hour. To honor a parent who's tough to love. To put into bitterness and resentment that we feel towards a brother. And God, we just come to be honest and say we're struggling. We're struggling. And we know we're not the only disciples who struggle. We ask you to please bless the Holy Cross Lutheran Church and all the disciples that are a part of that faith family. We have different names on our buildings, but Father, the same purpose, to welcome your love and lordship and to offer it through us to a world. Would you please unite us in what we have so much in common rather than allow Satan to divide us over what we don't. And everyone who believes this and praise in the name of Jesus said, Amen. This is crazy to me. <laughs> I know it's familiar territory, but it's still crazy to me that nobody stops Judas. How could the question have been more clear, who's going to betray you, Lord? And how could he be more clear about who it is? Okay, ready everybody? I'm going to dip some bread and I'm going to hand it to somebody. That's him. Even an Aggie could have got that. <laughs> How do they miss that? Now, we, we know they're not connecting betrayer with Judas' name. Because if they had, I guarantee you, knowing how hot-headed Peter is, he tackles him before the guy makes the door and he beats the fool out of him. You're doing what? What are you thinking? I guess I'd always picture Judas as some kind of a misfit. Some sourpuss that everybody wished that the Lord would just kick out of the group or maybe he'd just walk out. But the more I thought about it this week, the more just the opposite seems to be more likely. Judas had to be incredibly likable, probably very trustworthy, and at least for appearance's sake, very, very religious. I mean, for heaven's sakes, they put the cash box under his care. John says he had charge of the money. You don't just do that for anybody, right? Now later the Spirit is going to reveal to John that this treasurer of theirs had some sticky fingers, but I don't think he knew it now. 
A few weeks back, as we watched Mary pour some expensive perfume on Jesus' feet to prepare him for his burial, Judas feigns being all spiritual with Mary's act of worship when he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor, for heaven's sakes? It was worth a year's wages. But John writes these words had little to do with the poor and everything to do with Judas's pocket. Because here's what John recorded about that event. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now remember, John's not writing this as he's going along in a daily journal. No, he writes this after Jesus' resurrection. And so I don't think he knew about this. Or he and Peter would have been tackling this guy. Well, listen, we've always suspected that dude was a thief. It's got to be him. Didn't know that yet. But then John writes, it was night. And Satan entered into Judas. Wow. Could there be four worse words attached to your name? Satan entered into Judas. What an unnerving statement that one is to me. That one, just, that one was one of those, you're, you're, you're working on the lesson and you read that and you sit down and you go, wait a minute. It's one that warns us, I think every one of us who think hanging around Jesus is enough to keep Satan at bay. It's not. If you give him a place to get his gnarly foot onto, he will climb into and make a mess of everything about your life when it serves him best. And he will take you further than you want to go. And he will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. The Bible says, Satan entered Judas. And the betrayer leaves. But, the denier stayed. Peter stayed. When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify himself at once. So my children, I will be with you only a little while longer. And you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. And so Simon Peter asked him, well, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow now, oh, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'm telling you, I'll lay my life down for you now. And then Jesus answered, will you, leave, will you really lay your life down for me now? Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me tonight three times. Three times. When my girls were small, every now and then Gil and I would plan a trip to get away just the two of us. And invariably, both Tabitha and Lauren would make their way into the bedroom when we were packing, and they would say, we want to come. And we would try to explain, no, this, this trip's going to be just for mommy and daddy. We need some time to be together. And the next line was always this, but we'll be. Did I tell this story before? <laughs> no, because you've heard that. We'll be good. Now, that's not exactly what Peter is saying, but it's really close. What do you mean you're going away, Lord? I, I'm, I'm coming with you. 
Jesus says, no, Sir Peter, where I'm going, you're not going to be able to come now. But Jesus, I'll be good. I'll even lay down my life for you. Now, we know Peter's sincere, but we also know that Peter isn't as strong as he thinks he is. Now, we'll get there in a few weeks, but as a matter of fact, right now, all of those gathered in this room with Peter that night are going to pay a high price for their allegiance. Only John, as far as history tells us, didn't die a martyr's death. Everyone else in the room, they will. But like always, Jesus had to go first. And they had to wait to follow afterwards. But my, (laughs) I know Peter had to hate hearing this. Because he really thought his zealousness, his, his allegiance was second to none. What do you mean? There's no way. He's going to hate it even more when it actually unfolds. But that's in a few weeks. How do I know? Because I hate it when I fold. When I cave. After making such heartfelt promises. So do you. When you promised last week that you would wash the feet of those who were deniers and betrayers of you, but instead you bit their head off. When you promised that you wouldn't judge the motives of of your sister again, but you did anyway and then gossiped about her later. When you promised that you wouldn't go into debt for any reason except maybe a medical emergency, and then that big screen TV was just giving you migraines, and so you just had to get that thing. When you promised that you would stay connected to his word and it lasted three days. When you promised that you would be more attentive to your mate's needs and it lasted maybe two. When you promised, Lord, I, I, I promise I've been bought with a price and I will glorify you with my body sexually. But the temptation was too strong and your resolve was too weak and you caved. Peter knows how you feel. I think it's significant, though, the difference between Peter the denier and Judas the betrayer. See if you think so. When Peter's denial came, he was at least trying to be loyal, right? The difference with Judas was he had no intention of being loyal, which is why betrayal is such an emotionally packed, dark word. When applied on a national scale, it's the twin to the word treason. It's selling out your country for personal gain. When it's applied to church history, it looks like the immoral behavior of pedophile priests and money-grubbing televangelists and the inexcusable silence of many in the church that we foster because of racism and sexism. When it's found in families, it takes the form of adultery and child abuse in our own individual lives. Betrayal is not just momentary weakness. No, betrayal's premeditated, fully planned out sin. Feigning being spiritual to my family or to my church, but then selling out for a season of indulgence, planning and intending to do so. That's betrayal. It's an ugly word. When it happens to me and when I'm responsible for it. And I have been. So let me encourage you to use that word betrayal sparingly. Use it wisely. Because you know what? Most people are not conspiring against you when they hurt you. They're just weak. 
They're not with intent trying to sell you out. And we see the difference in Peter and Judas. Judas feigned allegiance and intended to stab Jesus in the back. He even got paid for the deal. Peter's attempting to be strong for Jesus, but in a moment of weakness, he loses his resolve and he turns his back. There's a difference. And you know what the good news is, though? Just like James said a few moments ago, Jesus hangs on a cross and takes all of that, both denial and betrayal, on himself. On himself. He forgives it all. Every bit of it. So I hope you take some heart in that because I know you've probably been guilty of it all. 1 John 1 and verse 8 gives me Chills. If we say that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. That's, that's where the deception is. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all the stinky unrighteousness. Stinky's not in there. I just slipped it in there. All the stinky, mud-clad, putrid unrighteousness that, that clings to us. He washes it off. I love this. Jesus is still washing feet. Now, there are some differences, though, in Peter and Judas' lack of loyalty, and I'm going to point those out, too. Or I did point those out. I want to talk about some similarities. Here's the similarities. There are two. Both experience the principle of sowing and reaping. You know what sowing and reaping is. It's planting and then harvesting. Plant this seed and we harvest a crop. Well, Judas sowed betrayal to death. And in turn, that's exactly what he reaps. A sorrowful, humiliating death. He hung himself. Peter sold the denial of Jesus because of his embarrassment and fear to a little middle school girl. And what he reaped out of that was huge embarrassment. We're still talking about his failure even today. Now similarly, they both could have received grace. That's the second similarity. They both understood the reaping and the sowing principle, but they also both, I believe, could have received grace. See, the Spirit of the Lord says this in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Could God's grace have covered even the betrayal of Judas? I say yes. It's just he didn't care to ask for it. He didn't. He didn't take it to God. He took matters into his own hand and he took his shame and his sorrow somewhere else and got darker and darker until he heard the words, just get out of this place. Just hang yourself. And he did. That's not what Peter did. Peter went and found his buddies after he had failed. Again, we're peeking into where we're headed the next couple of weeks. And he hung with them. And he repented. Many just don't ask. But I love the fact that some do. Five girls were dismissed from Danville, Vermont High School basketball. Why? Because they broke Coach Tammy Rainsville's zero tolerance policy in regards to underage drinking at Christmas break. And so, just before the varsity game was about to begin, on a cold January night, the teenage girls, four of them starters on the team, addressed a packed gym. They offered no excuses. No challenges to a rule, no anger at the coach. They simply admitted what they had done, and they asked for the community to forgive them. And then they walked off the court. 
to thunderous applause. Because God and most human beings notice when someone confesses that they've messed up and asks for forgiveness. Jesus offers us grace, but you knew that. <laughs> you know that. We talked about it all morning long. We've sung about it. He offers us grace. Make a snow angel in that thing. Receive it. Just embrace it. That's why he gives it. But the question is, is do we have a game plan for the betrayal and the denial, not if, but when it hits us? See, I'm asking that, both for our sake and for the world's sake out of this room. Because how we deal with the failures of the sinners that we know sitting in this room and the sinners that we say we love will speak volumes about how we deal with the sinners out there who we don't know and whom we say we love. Can I say that again? Listen closely. Lean in. How we deal with the failures of sinners right here in this room and how we say we love them is going to speak volumes to a world out there about how we deal with sinners out there whom we say we love and we say we care for them. Jesus addresses this in our next text. I just left it out of the reading a while ago. Did you notice? Some of you did. I think it's significant that in a section of Scripture dominated by dissension and deceit and denial, Jesus teaches the second of his two most famous lessons in all of his, all of his teaching. The first one we looked at in, in chapter 12, serve each other by washing each other's feet. And the next one is love each other till it kills you. Here's the text, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you. You love one another. As I've loved you, you must love one another. By this, everybody will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. <laughs> How great is this? Jesus just slips that little request right now. He slips that mandate, no, he slips that new commandment right in the middle of a night marked by betrayal and denial. And at first glance, it almost seems to be out of place. This is really weird. If you go back and read verse 33, and then you skip down to verse 36, they almost read seamlessly. In verse 33, Jesus says, I'm leaving and you can't go with me. Verse 36, Peter says, well, where are you going? Well, what happened to 34 and 35? The speed bump. That we're about to read again. Gail and I went to Rudo, so two weeks ago, most of you know that because I wasn't here, and Troy stepped in for me and did a great job preaching for me. Aren't you glad somebody said amen? I am. Not bad. What I was doing was closing out the 28th annual Mountain Family Fellowship in Rudos in New Mexico, and it's going to be the last one. I love it when churches start new things, try new things, but I also know it when churches realize some things have had their shelf life and they say, let's, let's dream a new dream. Let's run a new race. Well, that's what the church at Gateway is doing. That was, this is the very last Mount Phoebe Fellowship. I had a chance to be there for the beginning, and by God's grace, they asked me to come back and keynote the closing. I was honored. Loved it, as a matter of fact, but you know what I didn't love? I didn't love the speed bumps right in the middle of town. We left there about eight years ago. There were no speed bumps. And these are gargantuan. I bet they're about this wide. 
And let me tell you what, you miss seeing those, they remind you, we're here. They're huge. Why in the world would you stick three speed bumps right in the middle of downtown? And it dawned on me to remind me in case I don't notice them, uh, while you're driving, it's not about you, Jim. There's others to be considered. Slow down and care. John 34 and 35 is a speed bump right in the middle of a chapter full of betrayal and denial. And it says to every single one of us in this room, as you're moving at laser pace through this world, do me a favor, slow down. Enough to love your brother. And he's upping the ante here. Not like you love yourself, because that can get a little sketchy sometimes. Some of you may be right there. There's no way you're, you could... It would matter if you tried to love someone like you love yourself because you're not thinking too highly of yourself at the moment. No, Jesus raises the ante. He says, no, no, we're going to make this a new commandment. You love each other like I've loved you. What a speed bump. It's the second teaching point of Jesus in this text you wash the feet of betrayers and deniers and rebels and cowards like I've washed yours, and you love them like I've loved you. How much is that, Jim? It's not easy to, well, no, it pretty much is if you know the rest of the story. How much is loving someone like Jesus loved us? Just like when he was called crazy by his brothers, just like being called a liar by your neighbors, just like when he was run out of town, just like he was run out of his own temple, just like when he was laughed at and cursed and slapped and hit and blindfolded and mocked, just like when he felt warm spit on his face and sharp whips on his back, just like he stood in the own, his own pool of blood. That's how far. Till it kills you. Now here's the question that I take away from this little speed bump. Is that how we're known? Because he says there, it's how the world will know we belong to him. Is that, though, how we're known? For that insane level of love, or are we more known for our insane level of doctrinal strife? Or our insane personal bickering? Or our insane coldness and division? Now, I know what I want my answer to be, but my heart breaks for what I know it is. Eugene Peterson wrote, nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There's many places you can go to find people just like yourself who live for sports or music or gardening or politics, but it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love. A circle of Christ followers who invest so much in one another because Christ invested in them first. Who exhibit love not based on things in common and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Jesus who washed the feet of everybody, including Judas. What a speed bump. What a reminder that I needed to hear this week. And here's what I love about God. He would never ask me, Anything he hasn't first given me, he's too good for that. And then he wouldn't stop there. He wouldn't ask of me something I can't give him. 
in return. But I'm telling you this, I, I don't love this way on my own. <laughs> no way. Ordinary people do. Only people extraordinarily filled with the Holy Spirit can pull this off. As a matter of fact, we're going to read in Ephesians, uh, it's one of the first fruits of the Spirit. Love. First thing he says, along with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But he starts with love, extraordinary love, out-of-this-world kind of love, supernatural kind of love, a love that reveals itself even, listen to me, under pressure of being unloved, of being ungraced for the moment. So let me ask this, what kind of pressure has your love been under this week? As we wrap this up, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. What kind of pressure has your love been under this week? What face comes to the screen? What name comes to your mind? Jesus is asking you to do two things with that face and that name. Will you wash their feet till they're clean? And will you love them till it kills you? Father in heaven, we, um, it's not hard for us to come up with faces. We live in a world of ungrace, even amongst our own family. We, um, we let each other down when we've made significant promises and commitments. And it hurts. It really hurts. You know that. You walked here. You experienced all of it. And as James pointed out, even worse, you took all of our disloyalty and all of our feigned intentions on yourself. We don't know what that feels like. But we're asking for help that this message would not just go in one ear and out the other, that we wouldn't ignore this speed bump we've been given, that truly we'll love till it kills us, just like you did for us. We know on our own we are not able, but we have come to proclaim, with you we are. Father, if you brought someone here this morning who wants in on that kind of love, they've never experienced that in their family, not in their school, not on their team, not where they work, but they want to step into and make a snow angel in that kind of love. Would you nudge them down the aisle this morning to pledge their faith to Jesus Christ, to say, I, I, <laughs> I'm the betrayer. I'm the denier. Please forgive me. And then to have you wash away every sin in their life as they're baptized into Christ. If you brought a brother or sister here today who's having trouble with that face of the name you brought to the screen, would you, would you nudge them to one of our elders here or to me so that we can pray for them to truly get on a cross just like your son did for us? We ask this in hope and in the power of Jesus' name, and everyone said.